What's going on, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of the Indian Dots podcast. We're joined by a guest. Finally, after many weeks and months of waiting, we have got through to this guest in particular. I'm joking. Please don't get upset. So our guest today is an award-winning spoken artist, educator, and author. She's one of the UK's most critically acclaimed spoken word poets, and her work has been credited for tackling difficult subjects and helping raise awareness of serious social and political issues. Her debut book, Brown Girl Like Me, is set to release in February 2022. Her name is Jaspreet Kaur. Jaspreet, how are you? Hi, guys. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you for coming on. So, as I said, it's been a long time, but uh, you've been one of the guests I've been wanting on for a very long time. Recommended oh. by many, to say the least. Thank mm. you. Oh, that's so kind. India so just asked me today uh, on the on our call, uh, Jas. Um, he was like, how do, you, how do you say that word? Is it like, is it netra? Is it netted, netted? Look, yeah, let's start. Like, 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 netra. Netra, okay. okay. Look, look, netra. isn't great, right? Okay. And I was like, <laughs> maybe that's her surname. <laughs> no, no, good right. question. Yeah, what is Netra? Everyone was, every, I do get asked this question a lot. What is behind the Netra? Where did that come from? Um, mm. And it's now become like mm. owner and everything. But um, Netra is actually a Sanskrit word that I came across years ago. Um, I've always been fascinated in, in linguistics and the etymology of where words come from and where they originate from. And obviously a lot of South Asian languages have derived from Sanskrit. So like looking at where words originally form. And, yeah. and I came across this one word, Netra, and it had thousands of different interpretations for this one word. And I just, I was fascinated mm. by it, but it means a multitude of different things, but it does mean kind of relates to that saying of that our eyes are the window to our soul or this idea of having a third eye. Um, mm. And I thought that was really beautiful. This idea of looking at what is behind the nidra, what is yeah. behind what the world sees on the outside, this kind of physical form that we have and we present, what mm. is behind mm. all of that and really digging into what's behind the nidra. And then that is essentially what all my work was doing. That's what my poetry work does. That's what my writing work does. My educational work that I do is is delving into who we are as as deeper people, um, mm. and unpacking that. So yeah, that's where behind the nidra came from, um, and I've stuck with it. Stuck with it since. <laughs> I'm sure that there's a BBC show called Behind Her Eyes or something. There is. And they you know when that it off you. They ripped it off you, <laughs> in it right? I knew it. I knew it. You'll be surprised you how many people ended up messaging me saying. Yeah, there's a show on Netflix called, um, was it on Netflix or on BBC? Um, I think it's on one of the two, but yeah. Yeah, Behind Her Eyes. It was a really good series. Quite Behind Her cool. Eyes, there you go. Yeah. See, I knew I wasn't making that up. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Completely wing that one, I'm not going to lie. But one of the things you have done, Jasper, is you made Top Knot or Not, which is a big thing for the Asian community. So those of you that haven't watched it, please watch it. It's available on BBC iPlayer. And it's a pretty much, how do you describe it? A short skit, maybe, of about 10 yeah. minutes long. Mon monologue, I'd say. Yeah, yeah a, short, a 10 minute film. monologue yeah. of a Punjabi boy who has a, who has his hair, basically, and he's mm -hmm. growing it out. And it's about a difficult day that he had at school and the struggles he has within and wanting to keep his hair and wanting to cut it. And it hit pretty much every nail on the head that I felt at school as well growing up. And oh, wow. I think it might have resonated with Garan in the same way, too. Mm -hmm. But we have very different schooling experiences, me and Garan. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. I, I, it means a lot hearing that from people that have had similar experiences or have decided to keep their gifts or not because yeah. that that story um 
is honestly a story that I know a lot of things have gone through, including my husband. Um, and yeah. he was probably one of the people that in inspired the story the most because it is essentially okay. his story. And even kind of the basis um, of, of what happens on that school day of um, someone calling that young boy's butka a handkerchief um, yeah. is actually something that happened to my husband. So I, before I wrote this script, obviously I, di I didn't want to dive into it without having those conversations mm. with people that have, have, have actually had these experiences. So speaking to my mm. husband, my nephews who are all growing their gears and, and all have okay. beauties, um, my dad <laughs> who, who, who wears the star. Um, nice. So speaking to family, friends, other, other friends that I have who are things that have kept their gears and hearing mm. about all their stories because I wanted to tell this story as authentically as I could but also being really sensitive with this topic because it is such a sensitive topic. And mm. it wasn't about getting it right or wrong because I don't necessarily think there is a right or wrong when it comes to storytelling. That is the point of storytelling, that it's telling mm. stories. There, there are multiple different stories. Um, but I wanted to tell one that felt authentic and felt like it would re resonate with the Sikh community and, 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 and Sikhs who have gone through these experiences. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, it means a lot to know that it resonated with you guys as well. No, honestly, it did. Um, it meant a lot to me uh, because, well, me and Garen, we both went to different schools. So Garen went to a school where he was surrounded by a lot of minority folks. So not mm -hmm. just six, but also Muslims, Hindus, etc. And the grammar school of his was more accepting than, say, the state school that I went to, which mm -hmm. where I was one of like four Indian kids in the whole year. Mm -hmm. And I was asked questions like, what's that in your head? Mm -hmm. uh, is that a handkerchief, etc.? All this kind of stuff. And you kind of just let it slide, but looking back on it, you're like, oh wait, that wasn't that wasn't nice. Like all yeah. the stuff people were saying. To did you. you actually wear a patka, or did you have like the? There are some people. So I phased out of the, the. I phased out of the jura in like, year seven, eight. So during mm. school, I think I had a jura, and then I think I changed to patka halfway through. Yeah. No jura is just the top knot. That's not. As in, did you have like a? I think I, I think I just had that. Yeah, yeah, that with like a, a handkerchief, let's say on top. I guess they call it. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah. it. Okay. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting what you said there about like all those little comments that you would get because that, that's mm. what I was really trying to get across that obviously when people watch the film, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. when he's making that decision about his gears towards the end of the film, um, mm. it isn't like there's this one day where you try it, you, you go through this radical decision of kind of keeping your yeah. gears or not. It's all these small microaggressions of like yeah. things that happen over time, a little comment here, a little comment there. It's not always a big dramatic event, which is sometimes how it's been conveyed on TV before. Yeah, like this yeah, big yeah. dramatic thing happens and then you go home and you're like deciding whether you want to keep it or not. And I wanted to convey yeah. that it, it's not always like that. It's all these, it's these little microaggressions, these micro assaults that, I, I describe microaggressions like paper cuts. It's like you get a little paper cut here, a little paper cut there, a little paper cut there. And over time, they hurt and it hurts. But at the time, you might not really realize what's going on or you don't take it too seriously. You're just like, okay, that doesn't mean too much. But over time, it mm. will impact how you feel about yourself and it will impact some of the decisions you want to make. So, um, yeah, that, that's one of the things I did want to get across that it isn't always this one big dramatic event. It's sometimes these yeah. small drips of things that happen over time. I was expecting that. I was expecting before I watched it, it was like, oh, it's going to be a shot where whatever's happened maybe he's been in a fight and his case is open he's walking home and he's got his back yeah. on his hand yeah. but actually yeah the story you told is probably represents like a bigger portion of what people have and it's the ongoing thing and looking back at it now if you don't have sangat 
you know, if you're not in a strong community, if you don't have mm-hmm. your mom and dad telling you sakhiya about, you know, uh, guru sabs and gears and paimati das and all these things, mm-hmm. then actually it, it's hard. It is hard. And that's where I think Indy and I had slightly different kind of experiences where actually I was around people who never disrespected my gears or my mm-hmm. bhatka. I never felt like I was outsider. Um, but then the other thing Indy was I went to India a lot. Like I used to go every year, man. No, you uh, did I for sure. To... I only went probably about two, three times in my whole life. I think mm-hmm. twice. No, three times, twice yeah. to Punjab. That's it. And yeah, that once was when I was very young, and once was like two, three years ago. No, four years ago. So mm-hmm. very different experiences. And with that, going, you're talking about sicky role models. I'm talking about just role models around me, like my brother, my dad. Um, mm-hmm. I saw that they kept their hair and they were older mm-hmm. than me. So anything that I sort of had an issue with. I'd tell my brother and my brother would say, just tell me, I'll beat him up. I was like, it doesn't really work like that. You're kind of in university and I'm going through this right now. But then, yeah, it's... The other thing I was told as well is if anyone touches your jura, you're allowed to do whatever you want. You can fight back, you can kick, you can scream, you can punch, you can bite. I was like, oh, really? That's like code red. So, so if anyone touches it, yeah, it's game over. You, you can do what you need to now. And then at the end of the day, mum and dad said, if anything happens, um, we will back you up in the headmaster's office because it's a religious thing and they shouldn't touch it. Mm. I was like, right, that's good to know. It didn't come to that, but it's good to know mm. that if that happened. Yeah, but knowing what, what your rights are and knowing yeah. what's acceptable and not acceptable is is so important that we are teaching that to, to young people. Um, and also what you're saying about role models as well, about whether it's role models or just having Sangat around you that it can support you through all of this makes a big, big mm. difference because going through these struggles alone is hard. And there are kids that mm. are going through this alone. There might maybe young kids that don't necessarily have people in their family who have perhaps kept, kept their sounding kids boards. or, or yeah, have a yeah. sounding board. So mm. I'm glad we're now starting to have these conversations and there are these wider networks out there and different Sikh organizations out there doing what they can for young people to know that they're not alone in this, that there is support out there and if they are struggling to mm. find the help and find some support there are parents out there now that are kind of going in different directions and they're saying because they had it so hard growing up they don't want their kids to keep their hair because they, they don't mm. want them to go through the same adversities and i think mm. it was one of my family members asked me how was it for me growing up and i said i was okay ish to a point i still had comments and like issues but I think society nowadays it depends on where you are doesn't it i initially said to them it's not as bad nowadays but it really depends on where you're from. Yeah, so if you're absolutely. from a really poor area that people don't have any sort of education behind it, they're gonna you're gonna be met with more adversity than say if you're in a posher area where the where the comments are a lot more subtle and you wouldn't really feel it when you're younger, but you might understand it when you're older and look back on it and think, Oh shit, actually I was being given the same type of abuse but in a much more subtle, sugar coated way. Or it could yeah, not maybe so much I I think whether it's a, a working class area or a, a middle upper class mm. area. I think it's more about how much of that demographic is actually there as well. Because in London, we'll see a certain demographic and maybe it is a little bit more accepting because it is a more diverse city. Yeah. But as soon as you go outside mm. London, um, and if you're only one sick family in that entire town, whether they're posh or not, maybe a you different out, place yeah. to be in. Yeah, 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 yeah you're yeah. going to stand out. So, mm. yeah, it. it it's also involving those people as well. So 
being mm. quite careful that we're not being too city focused and London centric or Mid Midlands focused where mm. there is a lot of Sangat in those places. Yeah. Also reaching out to these other communities where we do have six and maybe more isolated areas that they don't feel too alone either, because that's where we have been seeing some of these more violent instances happening. Um, mm. It is in areas that are outside of, of the cities and outside of the more diverse areas. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, I know you want to say something. Oh. I've forgotten now. <laughs> but, but, but this is all good stuff. And I, I think creating awareness is very important. The sounding board thing, I think, is really important. I think I, listened, I was listening to Jordan Peterson this morning and he just said that his statement was, we are not good at thinking. He said, humans are, are not good at thinking, but we're good at talking. Right? And he was just essentially describing the premise of counselling. He was just saying the reason why people enjoy that or get value from it is that essentially you're unclogging and getting clarity on your thoughts. Which yeah. if you try and do yourself, it's too hard to be objective. And again, now you put it in the context of being nine, ten years old. You're trying to fit into a peer group. You're trying to find your identity. Maybe you just want to, you know, have a clean header of the ball. I remember trying to play football with my daughter and then trying to head of the oh, ball. And, like, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, no, no, you need to like head here and not in your matha. Now you used to play rugby, right? Every time you play rugby, a patakar comes off. Then it was like swimming. And then they were like, oh, you can't put a swimming cap on. You have to get special permission from the headmaster. I was like, why? I was like, come on, man. Have you seen the, like how long my hair is? So mm. all these things are there. But again, yeah, if I had it again, like if you're going to learn from these things, you're going to learn how to manage uh, and deal with people. Mm -hmm. And it, as a as a kind of other thing is you you become more educated about your faith and the ability to yeah. then convey that with other people. Yeah. yeah. Like now, like there's, a, there's been a big movement, I'd say, last 15, 10, 15 years about, you know, the sea contribution in terms of the world wars. Right. And there's a lot of people about, look, our faith is around uh, protecting other faiths. It's about doing siva. Uh, mm. And it's a well-known fact about how many lives are lost in the First and Second World War. And a lot of people will rally around that, that this is a warrior faith. Mm. And I would hope that all, you know, young boys, that they have, you know, they're proud of their history and what mm. we are. Um, at the same time, I think the other side is not to be critical of people who maybe choose to cut their gears. Because mm, I, I think, again, yeah. I, went, I went through a phase where I didn't voice this, but internally, if there were people close to me, like friends who I saw doing it, I'd be like, why are you doing it? And I'd become yeah. very judgmental in my head. I right? did the same thing when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now it's like, no, like everyone's on their own path. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you just have to respect you understand that, that when you're you understand older. That. You do. Yeah. And, that, and that's, you should, you should get wiser as you're older. It doesn't always happen. No. Um, <laughs> but these are things you reflect on. And the other thing, actually, I remember an instance when you talk about touching your podcast. My best friend from school, <laughs> we talk about this often. He wants through a football like through it, just at my head. He, I don't think he was intentionally trying to hit me in the head, but hit me in the patka, right? Oh, man. And patka was fine, didn't come off or anything. And I walked off really stroppy, really mm -hmm. stroppy. And remember, he's my best friend. And, and after a while, I called off and, you know, he'd apologize and everything. And then I remember, I, was at, I think it was at a Gataka class. This is some years on. And somebody was talking to me, someone much more learned than me. And he was saying that you, with, each, with any action in life, you have to look at what is the intention behind actions and so when i look at it in that context of what's the intention here to disrespect my sikhi what's the intention here to knock off my parka the answer was no in both of these things mm. and so to just blindly become angry mm. before understanding that you know again this comes with increasing age it's like these are the conversations to have uh you know with young boys but the mm. awareness that's created from such a film is yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's massive, it, was it was brilliant. Yeah, I was watching. Yeah, I was just smiling. I, I, I really like that kid. Yeah, yeah. I want to give a I want to give a shout out to Sahib. Um, Sahib, he's an, okay. 
fellow East Londoner like me. Um, I so... did like how he kept his nuances of being from East London. Like yes. he was saying oh, words with slang. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, yes, this is exactly it. It's not whitewashed. That's exactly how you talk. Exactly. I like it. I like it. it and, and when I was when, <laughs> when I was writing the script for it and imagining, okay, what what yeah. kind of kid is is going to con- convey mm. that ch- character, Jag's character? I did want it to be someone from East London, and I yeah, did want it definitely. someone to have that have that swag, have that confidence, but also is going through all these challenges and, and is trying to figure it all out. And I wanted somebody who can convey that. So when we mm. kind of set 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 out the. Um, casting to for auditions for the role we actually had which i, I want to give a shout out to all the boys that auditioned we had 45 young sings come nice. audition for this role and <laughs> we we went through each of those audition tapes and every single one of them blew me away so it was so hard to choose who we were going to pick for this role of and we course. had to figure out somebody who was right in terms of kind of the age demographic and then the right kind of persona and and sahib really fit the role perfectly and that's why we decided to go with him but mm. even the mm. other 44 boys they, they were incredible and and it just showed us that there is so much talent coming through yes. in our community yeah. and and specifically in in these industries as well we're talking about the arts industry so we're talking about kids who want to go into acting directing filmmaking so maybe not all of them want to become actors but a lot mm. of them want to go into the film or entertainment industry and I was just over the moon to see that because mm. obviously growing up we we know that our parents were encouraging us to get into medicine everything accountancy become yeah. a accountant, become a dentist become a lawyer yeah. and i had yeah. a lot of that too obviously when i decided to go study history and then gender studies my family yeah. were a little bit like what is this? What no, are you like, going to go do? Are you confused about your gender? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the main one. Yeah. This, is, this is a conversation we're not ready for yet, Jasper. The, okay. the, con- the conversation about gender studies was interesting, but we'll save that for a bit. But yeah, to see that we're now having more young people that want to get into the, in, these industries is, is incredible mm. because we do need people from our community diversity. there. Mm. We do need diversity in all of these industries because the point is, it's not just so much about having us there and having a face there, but it's also about the storytelling side of it. Because if there wasn't me writing this script yeah. and it was perhaps Flunner or ex white mm. male, he mm. could have conveyed that story very differently. So yeah, this correct. is why it's important we get our voices heard so that we can be in control of how our identity is conveyed mm. and can be in control of that narrative of how our story is told. And that is only mm. gonna happen if we try and get into these industries um, and try and get our voice heard. So yeah, shout out to all those boys that auditioned <laughs> for that role and all their parents who were behind mm. the camera, like do it again. Share them on again. Yeah. Do it properly. <laughs> Let me say to you. Then give me the reaction. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear the mums and That's dads brilliant. like behind the camera. Um, no, good. It's good to see parents um, cheerleading in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was amazing. Just to take a step back into the bit about judging people, go. There was a kid that I went to school with. Um, a few of our friends know him. Well, I'll tell you his name after. But okay. he went to the same school as me. Um, mm-hmm. He cut his hair when he was okay. in year six. And now he's at Amadari Singh. So he okay. went from keeping his hair to cutting it to now going for Amadari. And I'm just like, I'd love to understand his journey as to why he went down that route and what made him pivot and come back. Uh, maybe it was influences of like people, maybe it's his partner, etc. But all those little, as you said, microaggressions that maybe pushed him into... Not push him away, but bring him back, maybe. Who knows? 
some people say it's your gizmet or whatever it is mm-hmm. like you may maybe you have to go through that to realize who you are later on but mm-hmm. i didn't like how when i was younger i thought why did he cut his hair he's an idiot i'm keeping my hair but i was only young <laughs> i didn't understand that but now if i talk to him i can understand why he did it and where it came from so that's helpful yeah and this this is the thing the older you get i like to talk about the netra and the third eye and a lot of what i focus on in my coaching uh, jaspreet is about this thing it's we we focus on all of this you know all the time oki garda nindia jugali all this continuously and it's like you start the journey of looking inwards and start discovering yourself you could spend your whole life you know people ask i have other people other faiths who ask you know what is sikhi about and it's like sikhi is a discovery of self you spend your whole life on understanding who you really are where you come from you won't have time for all these other 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 things so you're absolutely absolutely right indy uh, mm. i agree with you there on a side topic as well um kid things are actually losing their hair now So instead of actually cutting it, it's just falling out. The older we get, so Bro, that's that's a male thing, man. It's not a no, 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 thing. it's a male thing. But I was like, okay, <laughs> this is like maybe there's another face to this where like you cut your hair when you're younger. Fine, when you're older, you lose your hair anyway. And I'm just thinking. Yeah. I I thought, am I the only thing out there that, that feels this way? Loads of others do. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you guys have issues with taking hair supplements or potentially doing what I do, which is not wearing a bug that often, but allowing your hair to breathe, having it loose, so that way you don't lose it. And I actually got slighted by a few people that I know for actually doing this and not wearing a bug. They're like, "Where's your bug?" I'm like, "I'm doing this so I don't lose my hair." And they're like, "Well, why are you being vain?" I'm like, "I'm not being vain. I'm trying to stop my hair falling out. That's not isn't the purpose of sticky to keep your hair." And I was like, "It depends on how you interpret it. In in which way I get it's a representation thing, respect thing. I know, I know. But there's there's there there is a balance there that I was thinking like, okay, why am I being pushed out now for trying to save my hair?" Say that again. Wait, wait, you went a bit fuzzy there. I'm saying, um, why am I being pushed out for trying to keep my hair? Let me come back on a question there, because the the question to you is actually quite good. What's the intention of trying to keep your hair? Because that's as in when I say trying to keep your hair, yeah, as in like keep it, not cut it or yeah, yeah. let it fall out. Mm. What's what's the intention then? Because you want to stop good. it from falling out. Because I was getting clumps of hair for falling out, and it was it was getting quite upsetting. Really, understanding that for years I kept my hair. And then slowly it started coming out in bits where like I had spots in my forehead. I was like, I don't, I don't like this. It, it's, it's actually messing with my own confidence. That's the thing. Yeah. Okay. okay so that, isn't that the point there again? Like, isn't it vanity then? You want, you don't well, want to be bold. It's, basically. it's not. It's not vanity. It's confidence, and it's also how I feel within myself. Yeah. So you feel but, good. But, but it doesn't mean that I'm disrespecting Siki any any more by doing. No, this. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Mm. I think so exactly just, what you're doing right now of asking yourself these questions that's the point, is, yeah. is the journey, mm. and and that's the point mm. that asking yourself these things of your relationship with this or understanding how you're feeling about this is is the whole point. Mm. So I don't think there is no right and wrong, and there is no black and white with these situations. I think what you're doing right now of asking yourself about why you feel these certain ways or where these feel, feelings might be coming from. Um, mm is is really valid and i think that's the really important part of, and and figuring out what is right for you because as we've said before every single person's journey is going to be completely different um and everyone's connection with their gears is, is completely different so yeah. keep asking yourself those questions and and keep figuring it out i think mm, of course of course mm. just to slightly move on a little bit how did you make inroads into getting that opportunity to writing this script for the bbc and how did you get it on there Yeah so that opportunity was it was a long time coming to be honest the conversations of having this film was 
going on for about two, three years of having this kind of story about a sick boy or a sick based story was something I was involved in for a while. And it was kind of mm -hmm. going back and forth with, with the production company and, and other production houses and the BBC and CBBC. This was kind of going on for quite a while until the right opportunity came up, which was this series of, of short films that were going to mm -hmm. be telling kind of very different stories from what we originally would have seen on, on CBBC. So the short that this particular film was a part of was a series of about five, six other films. Um, so yeah, it was a long time coming. And this goes this goes for, for everything within the writing industry that I've been working on, whether it is this short film or even the publishing industry and trying to get my book published. All of these things took a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot mm. of trying to figure out how these industries work because obviously I didn't know anybody who wrote films. I didn't have anyone <laughs> in my family who was a writer or an author or any of these things. So I was I was starting from scratch. So me and my and my husband, Indy, spent a good couple of years of, of really researching these industries and trying to get as much knowledge of, of how they work because we didn't have that cultural capital. And that's what it's called to have that yeah. cultural capital of, of knowing how these things work or, or knowing mm. so-and-so who can get you a job here or, or get you on the on the top of a publisher's desk. I, I didn't have yeah. those networks or had those connections. So I was starting from scratch and had to do that, that groundwork of understanding how it all worked. And then I was like, okay, so these are the different avenues. These are the ways that we can approach it. But for this particular film, it was me doing the work that I was doing, sharing a lot of my content online, being quite vocal about the things that I was passionate about. And this particular production company had seen a lot of the stuff that I was doing prior to this um, and, and, and approached me for this particular film. And they said, would you like to write the script on this? And when they said what the theme would be, I was like, mm. yes, yeah. I would love to write it. Let me write it. And I did say from the start, I, I want to have as much of my own creative control of this story as possible like I, mm. I don't want to be too conscripted on on how it has to end and what has to happen please let me have the creative direction and mm. and they said yes and the production company was amazing everybody on, on on that team was incredible um so yeah yeah it was a long time coming but now that I'm understanding this industry more it's now championing other people to get into it too and trying to bring in more talent in any way that I can as well when you say you try to understand how these industries work, how do they work? Just give us a brief. How do they work? Yeah, how do they work? Just give me an elevator <laughs> pitch of how it works, right? Go. Quick, quick masterclass. <laughs> Let, let's talk about publishing because that's one that I can tell you a bit yeah, more sure. clearly about how it works. Okay, so if you want to want to get a book published, for example, you've got a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, a novel, um, something you've been researching, and okay, you've got this idea for a book. You've maybe already written it or you've started writing it. Okay, so there's different ways you could get it published. You can go down the self-publishing route and there's different avenues to do that. You can do that through Amazon. There's a few other places that now kind of help with self-publishing. Um, and that's great if you want to, you've got everything ready and you, you want to be quick about it. You want to get it out there um, and you're ready to go. However, the cons of, of that is then you've got to do all the marketing yourself. You've got to push that mm. book as much as possible yourself. If you've got a big kind of audience already, then, then maybe you can do that because you know people are going to buy the book and read it. So that could be an option. Then there's kind of the crowdfunding side to publishing, which I've also yeah. been involved in um, with the Seat Coloring book, with Coloring Culture, um, which came out last year, which was um, one of the first Seat Coloring books for adults. Um, to oh, I should get that from my degree, yeah. 
Actually, yeah. <laughs> this might help with your colouring and, and staying go, in the line. You can you can give me that for my thirtieth birthday as a present. Yeah, there you go. Do it. It's yeah. so beautiful. When you we lose had... all your hair. Mm. <laughs> That's what you can do. Just sit there colouring, and it's, it supports your mental health. So thank you. Definitely thank get you. it. <laughs> so that was actually a crowdfunded um, campaign mm. to obviously get this book made and created. We had a number of different artists, sick artists involved in creating that coloring book. Again, amazing talent in, in the arts sector for different illustrators and painters had put together this, this book. Um, so that was crowdfunded and that was the community, the Sangat, putting money in to make sure this book could be produced and then um, sent mm. out and sold. Then there's the traditional route. So if you wanna get into a traditional publishing house, so Penguin, Bonnier, mm. Pan Macmillan, and there's lots of others. To do that, you actually need a literary agent. So just like you would have an agent if you're an actor to get you into movies, mm. you would have a literary agent who supports you in getting your book taken up by a publisher. No way, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, so you can approach a publisher yourself. You can be like, okay, I've got this book idea, do you want mm. it? But the only concern there, and sometimes the danger there is that there's no one who's going to have your back. Hmm. The publishers could mess you around. There's lots of things involved in publishing, like the royalties and making sure you get the right cut, and right. making sure everything's in the contracts the way that they should be. Obviously, if you're a first-time author, you don't know what should be no. in those contracts no, or not. So, not. Ha so having an agent, having a good literary agent who's who's going to look out for all those things for you, has has the expertise on those things, is is the best best place to start. And there's lots of different literary agencies across the UK, across the world. So you literally start emailing all of them and you go to you go to their websites. You can go to any literary agency's website and you'll find the different agents that they have and you'll find which books that they're interested in. So if you do crime thrillers, you'd find the guy that can help you with mm. crime thrillers. If, you, if you're writing feminist nonfiction, you'd find the agent who can support you with that. Um, and then hopefully the agent says, yes, they'll represent you. Um, and then they will help you finesse a, a proposal, a pitch Bye. to send to publishers. And mm. this is basically any kind of pitch deck in any industry that you work slides, in. Slides, all that stuff. Slides, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. Basically conveying who you are, what is mm. this book about, and why does it need to be released? Why does yeah. it need to be exist? And why does it need to come out now? And you kind of put all that all together. If you've got an audience already, that's great. But if you don't, that's okay too. Um, and you put that all together with your agent and you send that out to publishers and you think about which publishers you're going to approach because some mm -hmm. of them may not be into that. So you've got into into the theme that you're writing about or the book that you're writing about. So thinking about which publishers you want to approach and then you send it out to them. And then, then it's a bit of the waiting game. Then it's seeing whether any of those publishers want to pick it up or not. Mm. So yeah, it, that's the kind of three different routes that I researched. I looked into wow. crowdfunding. I looked into self-publishing. I looked into the traditional route. And I, I personally felt like the, the book that I've written, Brown Girl Like Me, I just really felt like it deserved to be in a big publishing house. And obviously mm. the benefits of that is that it's going to get into bookshops. It's going to get into bookstores across the UK, across the world. Um, they will support you with the marketing and the publicity. You get an editor who helps you really finesse that book to the best that it mm. can be. And I just felt like this book really deserved that and, and I really wanted to push for that. Um, 
so yeah, that's that's a quick masterclass on how to get published. Mm, that was pretty good. I can't lie, that was pretty good. It's gonna be a good snippet, Indy. Yeah. It mm. took you how long to write your book then? When did you start writing it? Did you have intentions of putting it out regardless of what happened? Uh, to be, it was. Sorry, say that again. Did you have intentions of putting it out regardless of what happened? Yeah, I think if it if it didn't get picked up by a public publishing house and mm. once I tried that quite a few times, if it didn't work, I would have self-published it or, or perhaps crowdfunded yeah. for this book because I knew it needed to get out there some way, shape or form. And this, the, my plan B was then to self-publish. And I was like, if it gets to that, then fine. Mm. I'm going to put in all that effort um, to, to market the hell out of it um, and make sure it gets every, everywhere it can. So yeah. that was my plan B. Um, and I may may take that option for other stuff later on down the road, who knows, mm. but yeah, yeah. But this book was, um, to be honest, it was seven years in the making. So wow. I first thought of the idea for this book when, when I was doing my master's um, in gender studies. And, and that's mm. when I first thought of the concept for this book because I grew up wanting a book like this to exist, a book for brown women on, on how to navigate what it's like for us navigating this intersectional identity all the time um and i remember growing up always feeling like i wish there was like a guidebook on how to deal with all the things that we as brown women go through but that book never existed and when i was looking for brown female representation in in books and literature but also in tv on on mainstream tv i just couldn't see that representation anywhere well, this was this is way before ruby Gore was putting her stuff out as well that yeah was, yeah yeah so sense. when i then started to see there were then a few different names and faces coming out in recent mm-hmm. years ruby Gore being one of them in the poetry scene but then we've also got like infamous names like the goodness gracious me team and, and Mira Seow. Yeah. So there, there were bits of representation growing up. You've got Bend It Like Beckham, Grinda Judda's work yeah. and, and, and stuff yeah. like that. So we did see snippets of stuff, but there was never never a book that kind of encompassed all of these things together. And I was like, how can this not exist? Um, and when I started researching whether there were any nonfiction books on South Asian women, um, the mm. last book to have been written was in 1978. Um, oh. And it was, it was by what? a woman. Yeah. 40 years ago was the That's last crazy. nonfiction book about South Asian women in the UK. Was I don't written. mean disrespect with this, but women could vote at that point, yeah? Because <laughs> mm. it yeah. sounds that that it sounds like it was made that long ago. Like that's taking the piss. It's, Forty yeah, years yeah. ago, so much long has changed time. ever since then. And it was it was by an amazing woman. Her name's Amrit Wilson, um, and it was called Finding Our Voice. And it was looking at South Asian women here in the UK. And obviously, in the mm. in that at that point in the seventies, it was looking at a lot of the first wave, second yeah. wave migrants of of women that were coming through during the kind of sixties and seventies. Um, and mm. Amrit basically went around the country and interviewed all these Asian women for this book. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I, I want I want to like update that, but also involve have a lot more weaved into a more recent book kind of considering what it's like for us right now um so yeah that's what inspired me to write the book that was about seven years ago when I first thought of the idea and I was kind of penning it for years and Mm. had kind of I had the skeleton of the book thought out quite a few years ago about what chapters I wanted to write and how I wanted to research it um but it was about two years ago so I'd say just before 
2020, just before the world turned upside down, <laughs> when I actually sat down and started really putting it together and writing it all down and then started the interview process as well. So I, I did a lot of interviewing for this book too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a long journey, but it's done. It's see, finished. in my head, I would have just thought, yeah, let's just make a book, put it out there, see if there's any feelers, and then that's it. It just gets published. <laughs> you don't think that there's interviews, there's a long process, there's agents. Mm-hmm. Sounds like It sounds like acting, basically, yeah. in, in the way where you have to go through many processes to qualify yourself to even get the opportunity to write the book. Yeah, yeah. That, that's or in like, your that's case, it. have it written but need it publishing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it works out differently for different people. I know some people who have written fiction so written like an entire novel um within maybe a few months and then mm. pitch it and it gets picked up so there's there's no set one set route no, even isn't. even jk rowling got rejected by like 11 so publishers yeah, so yeah. like the famous story yeah it's a famous <laughs> story that everybody knows and every author ends up quoting and i've ended up quoting <laughs> how many people told <laughs> you like if it, it doesn't matter keep going jk rowling like they yeah. must have said that to you so many times and you're like yeah fuck me man i've heard this before like <laughs> yeah. leave it please yeah, it's not helping get it me published. Yeah, yeah that's it yeah. <laughs> no i get it that's respectful yeah. but that, no. i do give i do give that advice to everybody to if you really believe in that book if you really believe in that story keep pushing mm, keep yeah. trying and um, try different avenues um, if something isn't working shake it up and try something else um but yeah don't give up uh, not many people know this but Goran actually started to write a book but he put it on hold for a little bit so really? Goran do you want to, do you want to tell did, people did, yes yes so just, I started writing the book called Just Keep Failing mm-hmm. so a lot of the public speaking that I do the stuff I do on stage is around initially it was around failing and changing the perception of failure and this idea that so okay I'm a doctor fine I had really good grades and all that kind of stuff but the older I've gotten it's, it's the understanding that you know good grades doesn't equal success in life um, but when you're in school, and especially when you're brown, Punjabi, like you said, there are certain things you, you aspire to. And mm. there's this false, I call it the brown formula, this false narrative that, you know, if you become one of these jobs, or you have one of these jobs, that success, happiness, fulfillment is just going to come as a byproduct. And when I got to 23 and graduated as a doctor and felt really happy, by 25, I was disillusioned and thinking, I said, where are these other things? You know, I'm supposed to be at the hill of you know I'm there like the rest of life should just be easy and happy and it wasn't and but when I started writing the book um what I realized is when I when I was getting into it I was trying to give a lot of value to people and to give them a framework and and how to approach you know the chaos of life and it was it was whilst I was writing I actually started I had a period of lots of chaos which I hadn't um I you know I hadn't thought it was going to happen and like most chaos it just kind of just happens and that was a very bad period of anxiety it's the first time i've been through anxiety properly you know and it crippled me um to my knees in indian nose but to the point where you know i wasn't able to eat uh, i wasn't sleeping properly one cup of coffee a day my concentration was gone and all these pursuits i had across many businesses they were just on hold i couldn't function and it was at that point where you know correct to my wife <laughs> so when i was going through it see what she said to me she was like Okay, each day um, you need to write, just write, and um, because one is gonna you know you're gonna dump what's in your brain on this paper, but B, this stuff is gonna be gold because when you come out the other side and you know you're a phoenix rising from the ashes, you won't be able to remember how you felt when you were here. Yeah, uh, and actually I, I was looking at that stuff the other day, so it's quite a bit of stuff I've written, and had I not been through this chaos, it would not 
it will obviously be part of the book now. Um, and I kind of felt, you know, if I'd written this book and got it out, it'd be a disservice because people may read this book and think, you know, his life is so easy. He just got good grades. He's a doctor. Like, it's easy for him to say you can be successful because of this, isn't mm. this? And I was like, I really needed <laughs> chaos. I really needed like mm. chaos in my own life and to reflect on that. And now, now I have a deep appreciation of a people with anxiety, um, which again, as a doctor prior to that, you know, people would come in and you can sort of dummy empathize or sympathize but you don't really know how somebody feels unless you've really been through it whereas now i think a i can do that with patients but b where it's actually been more helpful is colleagues Mm -hmm. colleagues where you can see the signs and the symptoms so during you know during covid i've had a lot of uh because i do coaching anyway i've approached a lot of colleagues uh, about wanting to get into this kind of stuff and the more you share your vulnerability um, which I presume you'll have in your book as well, the more people just open up and they keep coming with their own yeah. vulnerabilities. Mm. And I just found, ah, okay, there, there is a way to help people now. And then obviously extension of that now will be, well, okay, so in the Punjabi Sikh community, where are we talking about this type of stuff? So I'm already thinking about kind of a lecture series, um, going across Gurdwara's and just talking about a couple of key things, you know, um, depression being one of them, anxiety being one of them, suicide. Yeah. I had a, had a guy the other day, a uh, very good friend. You know, um, Kaka, Tama Tevin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, he he was at my house. He was just chilling out. And he told me about three or four different young Sikh guys who, you know, outwardly appeared good lives, happy, good jobs, and just, you know, commit suicide. Mm. And, uh, and we started talking to him. We're like, where is this coming from? Like, what is the, how much anguish must there be that they thought this was the, the answer? Mm. Um, so yeah so th- that's why I didn't put the book out it was like uh, okay I've written all this stuff and it's like you could probably find this stuff else, elsewhere it's all very personal development type stuff about failing mm. and you need to get over failure but I was like no but where's my story in this this is just me regurgitating other stuff mm. uh, which is why I paused so I'm still writing it but uh, it's it's evolving so Garen, right course. now on this podcast <laughs> on this yeah. day which is the 13th of October 2021 <laughs> when are you going to put this book out and when am I going to read it it's going to be released after after um, I've left this world. You can after have you've left this world? Yeah. I'll keep adding to it. I, le- I leave indie in my world the rights <laughs> the to the first copy. The rights. The first copy. The first right. edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sign. Give well, me the royalties. He's, he's not going to have Indian doctor. Anyway. You'll enjoy it for like a few months. I'll set up a company, yeah. The Indian Doctor <laughs> Company Limited, yeah. And then we can, <laughs> we can put it under there. You can just sign it to that, yeah. Perfect. Mm. Sorted. Mm. <laughs> no, but you know what you, you, you said? You said two things that really stood out to me. From what you okay. just told us was that firstly about about chaos um mm. and then and then how valuable chaos can be um, oh. and i i've i've used that word before when i've described my journey with anxiety attacks and depression because that's mm. honestly how it felt it felt like chaos in my mind because it would be thoughts and feelings and fears just literally like wild horses, like running, running, running mm. through my mind. And I remember when I first had an anxiety attack, I was only about 13, 14 when the first one happened. And I, I thought I was dying. I literally thought I was having a heart attack because that's the only thing medically that I could re- relate to. What was, I was, I, I was physically, <clears throat> my chest would tighten. Yeah. Um, mm. My heart rate would increase. My breathing would increase. I would get like cold sweats my hands, mm. my fingertips would go numb. numb. Um, mm. Yeah, I've, I've written a few poems about fingertips because I remember whenever I'd have an anxiety attack, 
the following day I would still feel really numb in my hands mm. and feel like I couldn't grip onto anything so those lasting physical effects people don't realize either so yeah you have that panic attack you have that anxiety attack but it actually stays with you physically for another few days it doesn't yeah. just disappear and then obviously that's the physical feelings and then the the, the actual mental feelings are a lot worse and it did feel mm. like chaos and and writing was the only way I could get that chaos out and and onto mm. a page and and I say it, it was turning something chaotic into something beautiful because when I would write it it would turn into something beautiful even though they were ugly horrible dark thoughts they did then feel beautiful when they were out on a page so yeah, yeah I, I really resonate with what you meant by chaos and then you're obviously you also said vulnerability and and that's a big part mm. of the work that I do that the point of sharing our stories and sharing yeah. that vulnerability is what builds connection and, and what builds yeah. empathy and yes. will spark change because, okay, all this talk about mental health stigma and, and tackling mental health stigma by us mm. sharing these stories is the only way we as a community yeah. are going to make any changes and, exactly. and any, yeah. anything's going to shift. So yeah, sh keep, please keep sharing your story, whether it's <laughs> through your book or, through speaking yeah. to other people whether we it's talk about it like in moments on the podcast like a lot of people yeah. don't know but that's when me and Goran took our friendship to like another level when mm. he started telling me about it because I was feeling similar mm. and we spoke about it but we didn't know we both felt that way until one mm. of us told the other and we're like mm. oh you feel this way too oh nice man mm. so in the morning can, it's I, me ask, and can, I, can I ask you both a question obviously yeah, yeah both you being being men did you have any of these conversations with other men before or were I think it's difficult to broach it with some guys because there's other guys that go through the same thing but they don't tell you so I'll tell my own and you can tell yours mm -hmm. from yeah. my friendship circle some of them don't they feel it but they don't talk about it mm -hmm. and I feel like if 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 I'm the first person to talk about it that's great maybe they'll come talk to me afterwards and that mm -hmm. did happen a few times so I was like, okay, that's cool. But then in my non-Punjabi friends, so I've got a couple of friends who are white, they've been open about it ever since the first time it happens to them. Mm. And I was like, oh. So one of my mates who came to my wedding, Jamie, um, yeah. he he went off the radar after, after school. So I was talking to him about this at the wedding. I said, Jamie, you disappeared for like a year. And I said, I genuinely thought that I was never, never going to talk to you again. Because, you know, you leave school, you meet new people, you move on. Yeah. And I said... I didn't know that you were going through all that stuff with your mental health and stuff, but you told me about a year later what had happened and why you disappeared. And I was like, imagine if you didn't tell me you just disappeared and you wouldn't be a slave and wouldn't be close anymore. And I said, you telling me that means a lot because you were only 19 mm -hmm. and you told me that at a really young age and that's very mature of you. And mm -hmm. it's taken me and Goran, what, only happened how many years ago, Goran? Like a year or two ago? And for us to really be vocal and open about it, that's like a massive gap between 19 and 28, 29. So, yeah. And obviously you may know the answer to this, but why? Why do you think guys in our community don't don't talk about, talk about well, these things? Well, go on. What's your experiences first? Yeah, so at the time, I think so... It's probably Dino, who you know, Indy. So Dino is, is my coach. So he He's been on the podcast him. before, guys. Yeah, he has been on the podcast before. And <laughs> it's interesting now because actually we were together a few weeks ago. He lives in East Down South. And we were looking at some of the WhatsApp messages at that time. Most of people think I like about WhatsApp because it's actually documented the level mm. of conversation. Yeah. There's a great thing that Jordan Peterson talks about where he talks about, you know, when, when life is good, you can plan a couple of years ahead and blah, 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 holiday here, blah, blah, blah. He goes, when shit hits the fan, 
real chaos happens, you know, reduce your time frames. What, what am I doing in the next five minutes? That kind of time frame. And uh, there's one message between me and Dino. At the end of the message, he, we were checking in daily. And it, I literally sent a message which said, have eaten a Snickers bar today, have been on a walk, have done japji sab nera sab the part and literally very and, and very basic shit yeah. right and he was like you have succeeded the day like mm-hmm. it was literally at that level that we were yeah. re- rebuilding from yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was probably the person I spoke to and I'll answer your question and you can answer after that why do men in our community not open about it yeah I, I it definitely I mean I see this in hospital but it's the stigma it's a stigma of there's something wrong with me mm-hmm. and I'm alone and I say this to you know all the rest of the doctors and nurses I work with all the time. I say, look, if we, we all sit in a room together, if we could just look at what we were all thinking about, you'd realize we have the same problems, you know, Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs and things. Same mm. shit, different narratives, mm. but we're all experiencing it with the same stuff. And if we just start speaking to each other, mm. just the act of, like Indy said, when you share something and you feel, you just automatically start feeling better that, oh, he understands. He's going through it as well. I'm going through it as well. We can do something yeah. together. Uh, you have to be, and the other, you know, the lot of, lot of things I get now is when I do share this, and this is why I'm happy sharing this stuff, it's like, you, you've had it. Like, Jazz, mm. you, you're so confident that like, you've run a company, you do this, you do this, and you've had this. Mm. That's the kind of comments I get now. And I'm like, yeah. and yeah. that's to show people, you know, I had um, two quick stories, two quick medical stories. I had a CEO in A&E the other day. Uh, she's been st- like super stressed for three years, and now it's, it's you know, it's manifesting in physical anxiety symptoms mm. and I was like I was just thinking like wow you've lasted like three years before you've kind of like blown out fair play man <laughs> do you know what I mean and the Impressive. second lady was a young nurse right a young Muslim nurse who worked in community and she come in and I, I like you know I read a history and I was like this sounds pure anxiety and I, 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 I said come on what's up mm-hmm. and all it came down to was she was living with her in-laws her father-in-law had passed away and her, her husband, her, her, yeah, her husband felt that he had to stay with uh, his mom, took after her. They had a house, which they could have moved out to, but they were not doing that because he felt he had a duty to his mom. But what was happening is when she go to work, his, his, her mother-in-law was basically just doing all this to him and poisoning their relationship. Oh, shit. And within five yeah. minutes, you know, she was pouring out. Like she was tearful and we were, you know, I was basically just in coaching with her. I was like, you know, where do you want your life to be? And how can we get there? And da, 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 da. And by the end, like, again, I haven't fixed anything here. The, the issue is still mm. there, but mm. she's been heard. She doesn't tell yeah. her husband about this. She doesn't express her feelings, her thoughts and emotions. She doesn't, she doesn't feel like she has a right. Uh, and I was like, it's just so rife. And the thing I said to her at the end was, look, my experience through anxiety has taught me this, that it's not that some people have mental health disease and some people don't. Everybody's on the spectrum and it just yeah. takes a few small spikes of this chaos to yeah. come and you're off kilter. So this whole movement about, you know, you know, how do we bicep curl for the brain, right? Is pre- prevention is the best cure. You know, doctors say it all the time. So mm-hmm. what are you doing day to day to preserve your mental health? Yeah. This is, this is where the work needs to be done. Don't wait yeah. till acute crisis to then be like with a psychiatrist or being sectioned and taking tablets Absolutely. and all these things. Yeah, but no one tells you this in school, Well, no, I know, no, no, but this, this is what I'm telling people. This is the journey, man. This is one of my yeah. things to champion. Do not wait to crisis point. Do yeah. not wait. Support. If you go to the gym to build your muscles so you don't get yes. diabetes and heart disease. People are paying are £500 doing? a month for their gym subscriptions. I'm sure. Japan, I'm not gym subscription. You don't, don't tell know, me that one, man. Mate, it's London, London, London gym. Oh, London, that's a mad inflation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't wait till crisis point to seek support. Mm. See your mental fitness 
in the same way you would see your physical, physical. fitness and, and and that's exactly what what i'm trying to convey to people as well so f- find what tools work for you of course there's the professional services whether that is yes. looking for medical support or, or forms of therapy but then there's other f- things that you could be doing on a daily basis that do support your mental fitness so yeah mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. do not wait till crisis point and yeah. um, do not wait till all of these signs physical physical and mental start coming through or yeah yeah Going back to the why of why we don't talk about it or why we didn't talk about Mm. it. Was that your question originally? Yeah. That was about 10 minutes ago, but Mm. yeah. Um, Yeah. Why didn't we talk about it? Because you're not sure who's who's talked to about it. That's a guy. You can talk to girls about it because girls are a lot more open about it. And, you know, (laughs) they have their own little girl chats and you guys are really stereotyping it, but you'll sit Mm -hmm. down, you'll have a little cry and you'll tell each other stuff. Guys that have that, we just have like, yeah, let's go for a, a meal let's yeah. talk shit about memories mix, mix then, grill, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, mix grill. or it has to be through home. certain vices and i've kind of seen that firsthand yeah so some guys drink yeah. and then they start opening up and i'm like oh okay yeah if that's a lubricant to... then fine i understand but yeah but it but shouldn't should... take for that to come out for you to be able to say how you truly feel yeah absolutely and and this is why when when i talk about being a feminist when i talk about breaking down patri- <laughs> patriarchal structures and and mm. people are like oh here she goes on again angry feminist what i'm I'm actually trying to say is that patriarchy kills us all it kills women but it also kills men equally when you say patriarchy what do you mean so these patriarchy is structures that yeah hierarchies that mean that men are above women for xyz reasons so that's kind of a quick summary of what patriarchy is and just like you've got institutional structures of racism and Mm. and racist structures you also have of certain races being dominant than others with patriarchy it's different sexes being dominant over the others Mm -hmm. but what i'm trying to show people is that those same things that hurt women do hurt men as well so for example Mm. by forcing really strict gender constructs of okay girls are emotional and girls cry but boys can't and boys need to be stoic and strong Um, and these are things these are things we're imprinting in our kids from the from the day that they're born about how they should yeah yeah all Mm. all of this terminology all this language of what Mm. we're saying to boys and then saying something very different to our daughters it, does, it might not make an impact straight away. You might not see anything straight away. And that, and this is what I've seen firsthand from, from the men in my life, that it's fine when they're younger and during their teenage years, they're okay, their mental health is doing all right. They're kicking back, school's fine, whatever. They go to uni, they're still all right. It seems to kick in in, in the late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, yes. And I, I'm, I've, I've seen patterns of this happening now. And that's the only reason why I'm flagging this because I've seen it happen with so many guys that there's something mm-hmm. here, there's something there about the fact that when they get to that age, for some reason, they're really struggling. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because at that point in life, they've got lots of responsibilities going on. Yes. Whether it's mm-hmm. No, it is that. No, it is that. It's the responsibility. You're growing identity. up, you're meant to get married. Yeah. Uh, all the things that they've been taught about what it means to be a man and that when they go up grow up they have these responsibilities and they've got to be strong and then they've got to take care of the house they've got to be the breadwinner Mm. and they've got all these things that we're apparently telling men to be then starts kicking in at that age and then of course they may be struggling they may be finding Mm. that time difficult they may need some extra support they may need a shoulder to cry on but because we've been telling them for so long that they're not allowed to do that we're then 
seeing men struggling and we're even seeing men taking their own lives and this is and where then we wonder saying, why isn't it and, and then we wonder why why young sick men taking their own lives and not just sick guys but also mm. men across the country it's yeah, the yeah. biggest bi bigger ki biggest killer of men under the age of 45 is is suicide mm. why are we letting this happen so this is why when i'm saying okay let's deconstruct some of these problems with patriarchy and and gender inequality it's impacting women it's killing women, but it's also hurting and killing men in certain ways too. So yeah, I, I, I'm really passionate about this because I've seen firsthand mm. how it's hurting the men in, in my life as well and making sure that they're getting the support that they need, whether that's formal forms of therapy, whether that's just mm. a shoulder to cry on, someone to talk to. Um, and obviously there is so much I can do for the men in my life, but this is conversations that I, I, I'm really glad you guys are having as well amongst men in those spaces and mm. in, in spaces that are just for men as well, that these conversations <laughs> are happening. And, and it shouldn't take leaning on a vice like alcohol, especially mm. in our community that has a really rife problem with that anyway, with alcoholism yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that we shouldn't be leaning on these things because there is... Then if we look at other issues within our community as well, and this is kind of big topics like trauma and intergenerational trauma of things that our yeah. parents and our grandparents- It gets passed with. down step by step. So yeah. say if you see your dad, who's first generation came over, um, who came to England, didn't know anyone, didn't know how anything worked, couldn't speak the language, had to get a job, had to figure it out. No wonder he fucking turned to alcohol to help him sleep or to to deal with everything and to build a sense of community because it, it helps them just get a grip on everything. Boring. It helps them calm and chill. And you can see why they touch drinking so heavily. And then you can see why later in life they just carry it on because they're like, oh, that's what I need now to fix myself. And then the younger generation looks at their dad and says, oh, he does that, so I'll do the same. Mm. And it doesn't get fixed. The only point it gets fixed is when the generation beneath says, that's not right, why isn't that right? And start questioning it yeah. and then if starts digging into that. it. So when awareness, insight and chaos, you need life's change agent are these things. And Indy, we talked about extensively about where do values come from. And we have these values which we imbue from our parents, which is, you know, power observation. So, you know, what do they think about what's a good life and what do they think about money and how do they value these things and what we see what we get taught and what we just inherently are around that's yeah but things that they value now and what we value now it's a different world so it can't it be is. the same so no, they value security secure. they value yeah. being secure they value having a stable job they value is going to work respect. coming back being safe honor respect yeah. we don't value that as much as we we as much as they do our because values are now like yeah. happiness fulfillment like that's much different compared to say what they had. They're like, what's but again, happening? If you go to, everything's fine. If you go to Maslow's hierarchy, if your primary need is rent, yeah, exactly, surviving. Because they were that level. You can't like yeah. you say to somebody who's homeless, like, mate, you need to focus on self actualizing. No, understand course, what yeah, you need to yeah. do. Like, gone. That we are lucky and privileged that we're at that mm. position. But at the same vein, here's the other problem. So, it's we are we are paralyzed by all the, you know, this data around us now. And the problem with that now is even though we've had, we've got more now than we've ever had, we mm. can still feel so empty and lost is because yeah. we don't know now what to focus on. Mm. And this, this is now becoming the problem. So like I, I had a young person coming to date hospital who, you know, there's such a rife level of entitlement. It's just like, she's like 19 years old and she's like, yeah, book me an ambulance to go home. 
What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, it has no medical issues, like, you know, before anyone says, like, whatever. There was nothing like that. But there is such a sense of entitlement and privilege about this generation. It's like what you said, Joshua, earlier. It's about, instead of entitlement, our young generations need to focus on responsibility. If you increase responsibility, the things that we talk about for film and happiness, they will come. Mm. But it has to come from that. You have to seek out responsibility. Mm. What's happening here? Internet? No, no. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, okay. What's wrong? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. My uh, thing's just gone off. It doesn't matter. Oh, okay. Fine, fine. Responsibility. Okay. Mm. It is responsibility. Mm. Um, I need to move on because I'm a bit aware of time, but that was really cool. That would be a great snippet. Um, yeah. <laughs> last topic then, Jasper. You went to the same uni as I did. We yes. never crossed paths. Um, I uh, I was told that we probably my... had no idea what each other looked like. I didn't have my red hair then either. I, I, I didn't. I didn't have my hair like this either. I was wearing a parka and okay. I had no beard. I was like clean shaven. If you saw Indy, you wouldn't recognize him. Like you wouldn't recognize like... me at all, man. Honestly, we would have been in the same down. building as well because you were. I think we were in the same building because I was yeah. in the geography building and the history building wasn't really a history building. It was mixed. You yeah, were just it was spread arts. everywhere. It was like arts yeah, building, it was just wasn't it? Yeah, he was in yeah. the Pangara team. Did you see? He was very famous in the Pangara team. I really, I can't believe we shut yeah. up, man. God, I swear to God. I was like <laughs> the kid community. in the in the library all the time, though. So maybe that's why I was. Uh, okay, I'm, okay. I'm a full history geek. Were you there first thing in the morning, and you got like the best the best table with that's a plug it. in the yeah. booth at like <laughs> yeah. seven a.m. and you used the Wi-Fi from seven till nine because the Wi-Fi was good, and then come nine nine o'clock the Wi-Fi <laughs> would die because everyone was on. Everyone, you know on. all the nuances. I right? would know to get there early. There you go. Yeah, there you go. See, and that's why see? I did very well. No, yeah, no, I was. I was <laughs> I was that nerdy kid. I've always been yeah. the nerdy kid in the library. Yeah. <laughs> so you did history. And yeah. with that, you're now a teacher. Um, but one thing I did notice was you obviously sent us a bio of everything you've done. And one thing I noticed was you did a poem outside Kensington Palace. Mm-hmm. So partition 47. And I was thinking, okay, did you learn about this, the things, things like the partition outside of just home mm-hmm. in university or in schools or anything? How did you acquire that knowledge? Because when I learned that, it was very late on. It was mm-hmm. in university. It was through a seat studies course. It was a little bit of my degree, but that opened a door to a bigger thing that I learned about. Mm, yeah. So learning about partition, learning about our own history, that was definitely something that happened at home um, mm. because my dad has always loved history as well. And we would have books lying all around the house. And as soon as I could read, I would be picking up some of these history books. And dad would have books from all around the world. So Asian history, African history. Um, and that's where I'd say my passion and my love for, for reading and history and literature first started. And then I remember then going to school and obviously still quite passionate about history and deciding to choose it for GCSEs and then A-levels and then mm-hmm. at uni. But then learning a curriculum that was the complete opposite and it was very white male Eurocentric and and it still is till this day. And I really felt that kind of unbalanced feeling of like, I know there's still so much more history out there for me to learn, but it's not Mm. happening happening in schools. It's not happening in the academic space. And there was actually only one module at uni um, and it was Mm. called Narratives of the Raj. Um, And I remember when I saw it on on the module list and it was like, what, there's there's colonial history to pick. And I was like, yes, and and picked it. And it was one of my favorite units. Um, But yeah, that was about it. And and everything else was still very white male Eurocentric. and then post that, it was 
me doing a lot of that self-education so outside of the academic space and outside of the education space I was doing all this learning myself reading researching doing everything I could myself um but yeah it wasn't it wasn't happening within schools and it wasn't happening within uni and then when I then became a history teacher to then see mm. that this curriculum is still the same was mm. so exhausting because it's like the curriculum that we've got today is still the curriculum that was made back in the 70s so under the thatcher government so wow. it's just it's just insane but the whole curriculum conversation is really complex because about 60 to 70 percent of schools in the uk now are academies and mm. academies actually don't have to abide by our national curriculum yeah. they can actually what is an academy like what's that transition why um, do they do it so okay so the academization that's a whole whole different academization that's a word yeah, yeah, word of it, the day folks yeah, that, go on. That, that whole process is the easiest way that i can summarize it is like schools turning into little businesses yep right um so rather than being kind of state controlled schools so a normal state school or state comprehensive which is kind of what i grew up in um yeah you would have state comprehensives, you would have grammar schools, and then you would have independent private Private. schools. Mm -hmm. Um, You then now have these academies, which are owned by like a trust. Um, So one trust would own lots of different schools. Um, So yeah, they're they're kind of like mini businesses and, and they actually have more sway on how things are taught so they don't actually have to strictly Mm. abide by the national curriculum, which is a good thing and a bad thing, but yeah. at the end of the day, what we do need to see is a, a, I would personally want to see a curriculum that is more inclusive, that is more diverse. And when I was teaching history, it would be a lot of my own time and effort to bring in all these extra resources and I'd bring in extra stuff into lessons and add things to my lesson plans to make them more inclusive and, and fun mm. and diverse and to show the kids in my class that yes history can be relatable for them too and it isn't just this one picture that they've been shown um their whole henry lives <laughs> yeah henry the eighth oh it's my all, god it's all about bloody henry isn't it <laughs> and in this is just a from a uh, like an interest question so you're teaching a school and mm. obviously you know the kids have exams so obviously certain things have to be taught my yeah. time gcc was all Hitler, Hitler was the thing we studied for GCC, all the papers. Yeah. Still is. Loved <laughs> yeah. it. Like, I, like I, it's still yeah. a period of history. I, to this day, yeah. if there's anything that comes on Netflix about Hitler or Stalin. You'll watch it. Mm. I'm going to I, I love history. So for me, oh, it's Stalin, definitely. Just, I'm a big fan of the Cold War. That, well, not, not yeah, uh, yeah. Not good thing you said, big war, fan but... of the... Okay, I'm glad you clarified that. Rephrase <laughs> that. You're finished. <laughs> You're fired tomorrow morning. I'm a big fan of Stalin, me. What? <laughs> right. There's a great um, animated, uh, I think it's a five, six part series on Netflix called How to Become a Tyrant or Playbook of the Tyrant. Yeah, yeah, right. I haven't watched it's, it yet. It's really, it's really good. Really cu- me, me and my wife, we, we, watch it, we watch it like every night. It was just, because it, it, it's the way they've, you know, they retail, they portray these guys. They've obviously done bad things. Yeah. But how? You know, and there's always this analogy I give. Um, are you a Harry Potter fan? Yes, right. So, <laughs> so in the first one, when Ollivander's talking to Harry, and he's like, um, uh-huh. you know, Voldemort did very bad things, you know, but he 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 says, you know, he's done really bad things, but they were, you know, magnificent things. And I give that kind of analogy when I'm talking about certain tyrants, where it's like, okay, hands down, these guys are really bad things, but the ability to do these things, to be like, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and they actually went and did it. And that's what this series kind of looks at. It looks at well, mm. how do they actually construct these things? And it's just. It's really interesting. Anyway, my question was, 
so when you say more inclusive curriculum, like what do you actually mean? Like what gives one or two examples of what would you actually teach mm. in school? Um, like that's outside of the kind of current stuff. Okay, so I'll, I'll give one example of, so when we're teaching empire, which is in mm. the curriculum, there is a section in year empire. nine where they learn about empire. Empire um, being? The British Empire. The British or, Empire, right. Or looking at empires in general, because it's not just the British Empire. There's there's multitudes of different empires throughout history. But let, let's just talk about the British Empire specifically. The way that it was taught for a very long time was almost like celebratory. Like yeah, this yeah. was the British Empire. This is the amount of the world that they owned. This is what they did and went into other countries and made them more civilized and governed them mm. in this way. And... It, for a long time, that's how it was conveyed. There was nothing about the atrocities of empire or the millions of people that were killed or displaced yeah. or what impact empire then had on those countries. Um, so that's just one place where we could say, okay, this is what the British empire was. This is what they did. Fine. Mm -hmm. It's not a story about good and bad. I'm not saying it needs to be that story of good and evil, but it needs to show a more realistic... Balanced. That balanced, more nuanced understanding of what that period was and the impact that it had. Um, so that's just one example of what what they could do differently. Or but in school as well, yeah. with with the Hitler thing, they always say, "Oh, Britain was amazing. We saved the Second World War and all that shit. The French, the French did nothing." And I'm like, "Go to French yeah. schools and see how they're teaching it because it's very yeah." Different. And I'm like, or, or and go, "Go to, to yeah. Germany and see how they teach it." And they they <laughs> own the fact that Hitler was a a, a massive genocidal person mm. and they own it and they're like this is what happened this is how we recovered afterwards and this is yeah. where we are today but there's nothing sure like that in again. british yeah yeah and there's nothing like that anything in, in, we're in, in denial the, the british history is in complete denial about all the atrocities that they were involved in and, and if anything just don't want to admit it because and there's loads <laughs> they get on for some reason there's this big complex here about oh the, the apologies that are required or, or feeling guilty mm. about stuff that mm. happened. We're, we're not asking for too much of that. All we're asking for is a recognition that it did happen yeah. and, and not to just completely um, just try and blanket over it. But yeah, that's <laughs> one example. Another example is on, of, of teaching the Vietnam War, um, which is right. another period of history that I, I love. Um, mm. And the way that it's taught is it's called the Vietnam War and it looks at America's role in what they went and did and how they got involved in the Vietnam War. It shows very little from the Vietnamese perspective. Yeah. If you go to Vietnam, when I was in Which Vietnam I have a couple been. years ago, they, they tell a different story. They describe the complete opposite. Like the, yeah, they, they say yeah. it's the American War. They say Americans came us. here and this yeah. is what yeah, yeah, this is what happened. And obviously, it's a very complex issue of of of, of communism and, and what was going on in Vietnam and 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 there's lots of other players involved. But it was also a proxy war of communism and capitalism going on at the time but yeah that's just another mm. example of where it's being taught from just one lens and one perspective mm. and and we need to be seeing these different perspectives in history and pulling in all these other sources and 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 viewpoints and voices mm. to say okay this is what a fuller picture actually looks yeah. like yeah objective yeah. truth <laughs> yeah. well the, i guess uh, truth is really i, I don't use that it's word when we're talking about history because yeah, yeah you, is there ever truth in history but what there is 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 understanding different perspectives and i think that's yeah. just something where our curriculum just doesn't do enough 
Did you get into being a teacher because you wanted to make those changes or because you just enjoyed the subject and you want to teach others about it? Um, it's, I, I, became, I became a teacher and I, I still am a teacher and an educator because I wanted to educate and inspire and empower young people. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why I became a teacher because I do, I do love history and I wanted to teach history, but also taught sociology. I also taught politics, um, also taught a bit of philosophy for a little while. When you become a teacher mm. in a secondary school, you end up teaching everything. They're like, you Every, can teach yeah. this, get you over there. Teacher, you teacher, yeah. 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 <laughs> there you go, you're teaching everything just because uh, there's so many cuts in education that this is what yeah. happens. But um, yeah, I, I became a teacher because I wanted to change young people's lives. And I thought it was really important for them to see someone like me in the classroom too, um, especially mm -hmm. teaching a subject like history, because I do not look like your typical history teacher, obviously. No. So um, <laughs> for them to see someone that looked like them and sounded like them and, and was similar to them was, was something I was really passionate about. And I, I had a teacher who completely changed my life growing up mm. because as I mentioned before I was a kid that was suffering from anxiety suffering from depression um I was that really shy introverted kid that would be terrified to put their hand up in class and yeah. and went through a really rough patch at school and there was one teacher her name was Miss McCarthy um, she was my sociology teacher and she she really did change my life and um, I remember it was one time after a lesson she sat me down and she could tell I was struggling with a lot mm -hmm. and she could just see it and she was the only one one of the only people that that saw that and you know that whole thing of when you feel seen or when you feel heard yeah how, how much of a difference that can make for your life that that was the one teacher that did that and she showed me how much potential I had and I, I, I knew I was I was bright, but I wasn't pushing myself enough. And she was definitely the teacher that was like, Jasper, you're you're made for big things and and you mm. deserve to fulfill that. And and it was because of that one teacher that I actually then started to to unpack a lot of the things that I was going through and also started working much harder in school um, and mm. then ended up ended up doing really well in school as well. Straight A's and A stars. Hey, <laughs> just saying, just saying, just saying. But it was really that that boost in confidence as well in believing in myself, because mm. then I I then went on to like become head girl and all that sort of stuff in sixth form, mm. and then just like looking back at at that younger Jasper, that really shy, insecure, terrified little mm. girl, to then then who I am now. Um, that was one of the people that did really change my life. So becoming a teacher and thinking that, okay, if I can do that for one other student or, or, or one kid, then, mm. then that, that's my life made really. And kind of looking at it from a sicky perspective as well and, and thinking that we're each here to find what server we can provide whilst mm. I exist here. I feel that the server that I can provide can be through teaching and, and, and that can be one, one way that I can help people as well mm -hmm. as the poetry and writing. So it does connect to my journey and my path in terms of Sikki as well, that being a teacher feels like my server as, as well. And when you went to do gender studies, mm -hmm. how was that received by the family, like how you said mm -hmm. earlier? <laughs> what, I just premise that with what is gender studies? What is yeah. gender studies? Okay. What is gender studies? Let's, Man, let's, woman, done. This 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 Degree. was the question. Could you imagine when when my when my bubba 
when I was telling my dadaji that, oh, I'm going to do a master's now. I finished my degree. I'm going to do a master's. He's oh, that's great. Yeah, that's what's good. what's good, the yeah. master's? And he what's knew, what he, obviously, he understood I was studying history. So he understood yeah. that much. And then when I was he like, thought Gen- I couldn't get any lower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> so they, they, they settled for the fact geography. That's what you get lower. They settled for the fact that I wasn't going to be doctor, dentist, lawyer, accountant. Mm. So I think by that point, they were like, okay, she wants to be a teacher. Okay, we understand that much. Um, but then, yeah, I wanted to do gender studies and um, explaining to my family what gender studies was, was, was a lot of fun. But to summarize it, the, the master's was a little bit of sociology, it's a little bit of social policy and politics and anthropology, but it's looking at the study of gender. So what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be female, male, and everything on that spectrum. Um, Looking at stuff like sexuality, looking at stuff like masculinity, um, but all the interesting stuff behind that all as well. So we're looking at kind of historical perspectives, cultural perspectives, social perspectives, um, how it relates to faith, um, how it relates to identity, um, and then also a lot on social policy, social policy and, and politics as well yeah. about how it involves it in the political space too. So, yeah, it was it was really interesting. Um, and then I had to do a research thesis that year as mm. well, and I decided to do my thesis on a on a really heavy topic. Actually, it was on female infanticide in Punjab. Um, so oh, I was wow. look I was looking at why specifically in Punjab were there some of the highest rates of female infanticide, which is the killing of a baby girl. This um, is weird. The reason why I'm saying this is because my dissertation was based on something similar. So really? mine was about sex selection in Indian communities. And is that wow. a thing? As in, do parents want, do parents want some boy or a girl, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. And is that a thing? And do you think it's still a thing today? And I'm like, okay, it's weird how you just said that and I was wow. like, I did that. No one really knows that, but yeah, I did do that on, on a dissertation topic. Yeah, because obviously in terms of geography and, and population changes. So in geography as huge. well, I did, a, I had to do a module. I mean, I, the, I didn't want to do it, but the module was basically based on gender and, and all that stuff. I didn't want to do it. Did you hear I had to do that? I didn't want to do it. I didn't, no, no, no. The reason why I didn't want to do it. The reason why I didn't want to do it is because I felt like when I was going into that lecture, I was getting beaten around the head for being a man. Honestly, like I'd sit there and I was like, fuck me, man. I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? So and sorry I was you one felt of, victimized for being I was one of like five guys, right? The rest of it was all yeah. women. And they're sitting there nodding it, lapping up what this lady's saying. And I'm like, I'm getting beaten, man. It's <laughs> this shit. But in all fairness, I learned about like other parts of the world where say in Guatemala, I think it is, where they have these small little banks and the women are in charge of the money, not the men, because the men are irresponsible. Yeah. I'm like, oh, didn't Good know that, that was a man. thing. So little things like that, you, you tend to learn and pick up on. Yeah, that but, co- that yeah. cultural context is, is so valuable. When you learn yeah. about the fact that many other cultures outside of the Western world, it yeah. is very different dynamics. They haven't split they, differently to what you think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And many families and many, many places across the world are actually female led and are very maternal led and and they hold those roles in families and in wider structures um is actually only in the western world that we actually have these dynamics of of patriarchy even in south asia from parts of the Mm. world that we're from yeah yeah women were had were in positions of power for a very very long time Mm -hmm. it was only when the british came that, that that all changed so uh 
yeah, it's actually the Western world that actually has more of an impact <laughs> on some, some of those things. But yeah, anyway, um, that that was what, what my thesis was on. Um, and I did actually look at a lot of, from the kind of population perspective and, and the geography perspective of, of why specifically in Punjab was it happening so much. Um, mm -hmm. So female infanticide and also sex selective abortions and then also the abandonment of, of baby girls as well. Um, and I worked with quite a few charities in Punjab looking at this specific issue, but also looking at how it translates to here in the West as well. So why do mm. we have this ongoing sun preference that we still mm. even still see till this day? Yeah. It's like as soon as anyone gets pregnant, it's like, oh, munda, it's munda like yeah, munda. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we're still that's still going on now. Um, and what detrimental effect that can have on a number of different things, what effect that can have on girls, what effect that can have on boys, what effect that can have on our gender ratio in, in years to come. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's actually what I ended up researching in that gender studies masters. And I remember later on that year when I was talking to my dadaji, who, who I used to call Babaji, about what my thesis was on, he actually told me a few firsthand stories of mm. people in his friend that had actually killed baby girls. There we go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so he had those those stories. Yeah. It is. Uh, it's deep. It's deep. I'm fine. Mm. But yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's. It's it's massively tough. And what was your outcome of yours? Because mine was sort of inconclusive. But did yeah, you have like a set theme that came out of it? I guess kind of the outcome of of that research was okay. What what can we do next? How can we stop this from happening? How can we reduce mm. this from happening? That was kind of what I wanted to get out of the thesis. So actually looking at okay the statistics and 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 collating all those stories, but then also saying okay what do we do next? And there was a number of different things to look at. That's kind of like education. Um, in those particular areas, um, supporting those girls that have been abandoned, yeah. um, political changes that can be made. So kind of macro perspectives and then micro perspectives of, of some of the changes that can be made from the top down and, and bottom up. Um, so that's kind of where, mm. where I left that thesis and, and where, where it finished off. But after I finished writing it, I was like, okay, how do I get this message out? And how, how do I share this with as many people as possible? Because mm. I was so passionate about it that I wanted to share that that message with more people. And I, I recognize that not everyone's got the time to read a 20,000 word paper. So it's not like I can go around giving, giving mm. this thesis yeah, to everybody. Yeah. So I was like, what could I do? What can I do to get this message out there? And for many years, by this point, I'd been writing poetry. And like I was mentioning before, I was using poetry as an outlet for a lot of the stuff I was going through as a teenager. So I'd been writing since I was 13. So I was like, okay, how about I summarize this thesis into a short poem? Because mm -hmm. people have time to read a short poem or to listen to a one minute poem. And there was a poem called Queens and Corpses. And I remember I heard about this, this arts and poetry night that was happening over in West London. I'm from East London. And I That's heard about mission. this. Yeah, I was like, all the way in Hounslow, there was this um, arts and poetry night going on. It was called Saffron Mike. Um, and shout out to everybody that was at Saffron Mike that night. Um, and that was actually the first show that I ever performed at. And that was about five, five, six years ago now. And that was the first poem I ever performed in front of an audience as well. And it was about about that topic. Um, and that that poem, someone was filming it in the audience, went viral the next morning. And I woke up 
with messages from people all around the world, UK, North America, Australia, Canada, India, saying nice. they were really moved by that poem and really related to the topic of that poem and this issue of sun preference um, mm. and, and why is it still happening? And that's actually where my journey is behind the Nedro began. And, and that's when I kept performing because I was like, okay, poetry can be really powerful in getting people to listen to certain messages. And it, it can be really a really accessible way to talk about difficult topics or taboo mm. topics, whether it's female infanticide and gender inequality, whether it's yeah. mental health stigma, whether it's stuff to do with race and identity, whether it's stuff to do with history. Mm. Poetry can be a really powerful form of, of getting some of these messages across and a really accessible way to do that. Because I think what's special about spoken word, which is the, the art form that I, I do, and, and rather than just kind of traditional poetry, which is written, spoken word poetry has the intention to be heard. Yeah. So when when you're when you're writing it, even when I'm writing the poems, I'm I'm imagining what they're going to sound like and and yeah. where I want to how well it flows and the tone yeah. and the, it's yeah it's, mm. it's it's derived from rap music, so it's very similar to the hip hop scene. That spoken mm. word poetry originated as a, as political poetry. Mm. So for communities that were marginalized or muted or ignored, spoken word poetry was the way to to voice their mm. stories and to voice the things that they needed to share. Um, so that's why I, I find it so powerful and that's why I love it so much. But but yeah, that's actually where my poetry journey started as well at the same time as when I was doing my masters. And I think that's a good place to have a full circle moment from <laughs> what, the conversation of how to enunciate your YouTube channel and name to how it all finished. I think that's a good place. <laughs> But Jasper, before we finish, I do have to ask you some quick part questions. Yes. So Ooh. the rule is you have to tell me the first answer that comes to your mind. Oh, God. Any long okay. pauses, you will dun, be penalised. No, I'm joking. There's no, there's no, nothing's going to happen. I don't just, know. Uh, <laughs> just be honest here. Just be honest. Okay. okay. All right. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. What's your favourite food? Roti. Oh, be more specific. What, what in roti? Tell me, tell me your death row meal. My death row meal would probably be roti, <laughs> sag, and dahi. There you go. That's it. That's Boom. it. Cool. Makki yeah, di roti, right. no roti. Makki di roti. Now I'm gonna there have to change. Go. Sorry, see, I'm wood not good sag, at this. Wood sag. There you go. It has to go. I get that. I understand that. <laughs> What's the name of the temple that we pray at? Gurdwara. Mm. But it's not. Yeah, she says it go. See how she says it. <laughs> no, 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 no. She... I'm also going to correct that it's technically not a temple. I know it is. I know it is. The, the, but, but, but the reason why I say it in that way is to stop people from being like, like, how do, I, how do you say Godwara? People are like, Godwara. But I'm like, I have to get you to say it. Oh, the whole yeah. Godwara, Godwara. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, okay, right, there you yeah, go. Okay. There you go. That's yeah, why yeah. I said it in that way. I know it's not, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Humble the Poet or Rupi Kaur? Rupi Kaur. Okay. Biggest idol growing up? My dad. Very good answer. You'll be getting some hope the next time you see him. Watch. <laughs> What's the one thing you would change about the school curriculum? Making it more inclusive. What's the one thing you wish you could tell your younger self? Be brave. And what's your nickname at home? Oh, God. Do I have to say this out loud? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's go, man. Let's go. Let, let, let's, let's guess first, Indy. One guess for you and one guess for me. Good. You're going to both guess? 
We're gonna guess. We'll guess first. Okay, go ahead. Go on. Give me a guess. I said Jesse. Okay, I would say Jesse. So, if it, is it actually to do with your name? That's the first thing. Was it like a complete random one? Is it like let do something like what? <laughs> <laughs> it was like a like a happy random. Yeah, yeah, yeah random yeah. nickname. We're, we're not gonna get it. We're not gonna get it. You know yeah. what? I don't have one nickname. There's multiple nicknames that my Go family on. have Read for me because I I am I am. <laughs> I'll tell you the one that I hate okay. the most because I'm going to let you. Yes! Oh my god! Yes! Brito, yes! <laughs> it's see, see, it's such a the connotation of that word. I, I, I don't like know, man. It. You you think of just like some oh, old auntie Brito. eating the of the like oh Brito, Brito auntie. No, you know they said like. You'll know the kids will be talking to other kids and be like, you'll know it's Brito auntie because she's got red balls. She's got red balls. Lal balls. Lal balls. Lal balls. Yeah, that's the one that I hate and okay. my brothers know I hate it as well. So they'll say it on purpose. But yeah, yeah. I've got oh, quite, I'm, I'm the youngest of four siblings. So four, you can imagine okay. how much I get picked on. So Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Indy's, Indy's the same. I'm the same. Oh, I understand yeah. it. I understand it. Youngest at his um, wedding reception uh, recently. So his name is Indavir, and so it's just the same a... name as my husband. I've not heard many oh, Indians. Too, many, too many. I need to oh, meet this guy, man, because too many parallels between me and him have emerged. He's there. He's there. He's there. Look, he's right he, there. He, he, the he did come here. Now he's ran away. By the I'm way, sure. last question: do. do you know how you also said that that the story is based on your husband's journey? Yeah. yeah. In the actual, in the series, yeah. the kid said he got the number off a goodie called Holly. Did your husband get the number true. off a goodie called that, Holly? Oh, yeah, right. he checked to know Harleen. <laughs> no, I'm oh, kidding. Harleen, Harleen. That's it. I'll tell you why I put that bit in. And some people are like, oh, why did you put that bit in? Da, 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 da. I no, that's, it's real. No, it's real. And I wanted young things to feel like, you know what? They can get a girl's number too. And the so, thing, the thing is, we are British sick, and I think this is something yeah. that we don't. Part of identity, yes, is that we're sick, but we're British as well. And that I think was beautiful about what you said. Yeah, it's yeah. The, marrying the two. It's not like we're we, we're not saying it's from India. That's a different experience. And, yeah. it, people and it's something here. realistically yeah. teenagers go through. They are gonna Dude, man, be they... chatting to whoever and want to get so and so's number. So it, it's it's a true depiction. So. Yeah. <laughs> and lastly, your book recommendations. Um, if you want to tell us now, you can tell us now, or you can tell us after, and we'll drop it in the little um, caption of the of the. Um, oh yeah, the let me let me have a think about them, and I'm going to give you a yeah, couple that a you can suggest. Do you want to do you want to tell people how they can find you? So everyone can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, all those good places at Behind the Nedra. And when's your book coming out? Uh, so Brown Girl Like Me is coming out next February, so the 17th mm-hmm. of Feb 2022, but it is available to pre-order already. So, And where can yes. you pre-order it? Um, at all good bookshops, so Waterstones, <laughs> W.H. Smith's, Amazon, um, you can find it, you can find it everywhere. So yeah. There we go. That's a polished that, answer, my it? friends, is how you plug something. Okay. Yeah, like at that. all That's good bookstores, right? All good bookstores. Book You're like, like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa. <laughs> Amazon? Damn, right? He's- Going to get isn't he? Oh man, but thank you, Jasper. You just froze in the funniest position. Yeah, you're like, froze like this. Anyway, thank you, Jasper, aka Prito. Um, I should not have told you guys that. I'm gonna gonna regret that. On an actual level, I need to meet your husband just to see how how his name is in the video. Get him on camera. Oh, no, no, I'll happily pop up on the podcast next. Go and sort it out. 
We'll bring yes. him on next. Yes. Done. We'll be happy to. Sing love, bromance. Sing love, my bromance. Let's go. In the beat, in the beat. Indie versus Indie. Do that crew. But thank you guys if you made it this far. Thank you for listening this week. And drop us a comment, uh, like, comment, share, subscribe, all of that good stuff. And we'll see you next week. Cheers, guys.